Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. You know, pain is alone someplace. I don't have to tell you, do I? It'll drop a rock in your stomach right through your pounding heart. And when your knees are so weak, you hit the ground and you finally realize you don't got this. Well, now you might just make it. You see, the tallest tree may not weather the storm, but its roots do. So dig in. Stand up and let the wind blow. Because there's hope. All right, well, real quick, would you give it up for uh, unintentionally my twin today, uh, Gavin Adams? So we just felt like we had to highlight this. I feel like we're on a contest of who wore it better. So... I should have specified I was wearing the black jacket today and I didn't do that, I, so that's my I, I just packed from Atlanta and just brought my <laughs> center point attire. I, I, you, you do that, though, like when you travel. You know that. Like, you, you bring clothes that match. Like, when I go to the Baptist church in Atlanta, I wear a sport coat. And when I come here, I wear J's and you a jacket. It. You nailed it, bro. I know. You nailed it. <laughs> I thought, I've always thought you were handsome, so this is um, more proof. So. Thank you. I'll take it as a compliment. All right. All right. See you. See ya. Hey, I, I do love being at Center Point. Thanks for having me. And I didn't know I had a title. Bryant gave me a title. It's about strategy. It's amazing. So um, I, I do get to work with the team here a lot on strategy and things like that. And it's always so fun hanging out. Last night, I, I got in early enough to have dinner um, with uh, Bryant Nicole. And uh, man, it's so cool to hear about her gathering and really just all the things you guys are doing in the community. I love it. I love being a part of it. Um, and I really do love the Falcons. Um, there was a four-week stint where I really was uh, super pumped. Uh, we, we had Matty Ice and you had nobody. Um, I mean, your best, your best hope was Jameis Winston coming back, and, which I was a huge fan of, uh, but uh, now we are in a lot more trouble. Uh, we, we have the backup quarterback from Tennessee. He wasn't even good enough to play there, and now he's starting for us. Here, here's a quick question to start, though, really quick. Just show of hands. Um, how, many of you, how many of you believe that the Bolts are making it to the Stanley Cup Finals? Yeah. Yeah. How, how many of you uh, see a lot of Bolt shirts? Way to go. Um, how many of you believe the Bucks are going to the Super Bowl? Right? Right? I, how many of you believe the Rays are going to go to the World Series? You at least have a good chance. Anybody? Yeah, a little less hopeful. I believe the Falcons are going to the Super Bowl this year. I firmly believe that because they haven't started the season yet. I believe, I believe they're going to make it. I, I do this every year. I get my hopes up, right? You're doing this, right? I, I hate to tell you this. None of those things you raised your hands for are going to happen. The Bucs aren't going to the Super Bowl. They're not going to make it. The, your quarterback's 30 you know, years past his prime. He's 84 years old. I mean, he's not going to do it, right? He gets hit one time, right? He breaks a hip, it's over. So that's what happens to the elderly. So the Bolts, I know they won last night, but they went to game seven. Was it the opening round? 
I mean, they're not making it, you know? The Rays, the Rays, I mean, they're not gonna make it. They have the, the, the Yankees, like they're like the Death Star. They're never gonna win against the Death Star, you know? But the season hasn't started for football. You know what that means? We're crazy hopeful. Like when it comes to the Falcons, I'm telling you, I grew up in Atlanta. I've been a Falcons fan for 47 years. It's 47 years of disappointment. This is 47 years. And every season, when the season starts, I'm looking at stats, looking at the team, looking at the roster. I'm like, you know what? I actually think we have it this year. I think we have the roster to do it this year. Now, mind you, the Falcons currently are competing with the Browns to be the worst franchise in the NFL. It's like they're actively trying to be terrible. They're, they're, they're making a concerted effort to get the number one pick over and over and over. There is Jacksonville. The Jaguars are worse. But the Falcons are terrible, if I'm honest, but I'm crazy hopeful because they haven't played a game yet. Now, ask me after the first game, I will be completely out. And I will be exhibiting, working all of my hope and energy towards next season. But for now, for now, I'm really hopeful. And that's what I love about sports. We're not gonna talk about sports that much, but that's what I love about sports, right? It doesn't matter how bad you're losing. It doesn't matter how bad the team looks. None of that matters because before the game starts, we are so full of hope. I mean, even if you're down, like I used to play baseball a lot when I was a kid. I played baseball for like 13 or so years, 12 years. And, and baseball is kind of a slow game. It's a little boring in a way, uh, but if you pay attention to the entire game, it's like a story, it's like a narrative. And as the story grows, as the narrative moves forward, there's lead changes, there's pitching changes, there's errors every once in a while, home runs are so exciting. Every once in a while there's a grand slam or a triple play, really rare. And it's so exciting to see that as a part of the story. And then, and then every once in a while, you maybe are playing in a game or maybe you're in the stands or you're watching your favorite team and, and you're the home team and you're losing and you're trying so hard to come back. And, and early in the game, you're trying to make the comeback, it's kind of exciting, but then it gets to the bottom of the ninth inning. And you're only down by one run. And the first guy comes up to bat and he strikes out, or maybe he gets on and it's so exciting, but then the second guy comes up and he, the second guy always hits into a double play. And so now there's two outs. You're down by one run, you've got one more shot. You got one more chance to make it. You got one more chance for that great comeback, right? You, you take your hat, you ever done this? You take your hat, you put it inside out and put it on, it's called a rally cap. It doesn't work, but we do it because we need all the hope we can get, you know? We start chanting, we start cheering, we're all standing up with anticipation because if our guy can get on, we have a chance. We still have hope. Hope is such a powerful emotion in every area of life. When you think about hope, it's interesting to look at hope in the context of the Bible. When you kind of flip through the pages of the Bible, there are all of these characters and their stories are just stories of hope. Almost everybody you look at in the Bible has a comeback story. There's a bottom of the ninth moment where God comes through and everything changes. I mean, let me just give you a, a really short list. I, we could go forever on this. But for instance, Daniel, you know about Daniel? Daniel is thrown into a hungry den of lions, okay? The lions are hungry. They starve him on purpose so that when they throw the criminal in, the lion would devour the people, super gross. Next morning, they go pick up a few bones. It's over, right? They throw Daniel in the lion's den. The next morning, they come back, and Daniel is hanging out with them. He's petting them. He's riding one of them around in a circle. Right? The king can't believe it. He can't believe it. God comes through. I mean, bottom of the ninth, two outs, thrown into the lion's den. Daniel survives. Incredible, incredible comeback, you know? I mean, 
How about Moses? Moses is born into the bottom of the ninth moment. He's born into a season where all of these little boys, Jewish boys, are being uh, killed. So Moses' mother doesn't want that to happen to him, puts him in a little wicker basket. If you're a mom, can you imagine this? Puts the infant in a basket, floats him down the Nile. The Nile is known for a few things, crocodiles being one. Floats him down the Nile. The daughter of the Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world, in the land, finds Moses. It's a comeback story already. But then there's more bottom of the ninth moments throughout his life. He grows up in the house of Pharaoh. But then he is uh, blamed for some improprieties, bottom of the ninth. He, he sees his Jewish people struggling and it bothers him. He gets into a big fight, gets in trouble, bottom of the ninth. Then he murders somebody in anger, but because an Egyptian was beating a Jewish person, it really bothered him as a Jewish person and he took his anger out and ended up murdering this person, bottom of the ninth. He has to flee to Midian for 40 years in the wilderness. And that's a long bottom of the ninth, 40 years. He thought baseball was slow, go to Midian for 40 years. And then he comes back. You remember this, Charlton Heston, let my people go. He goes to the Pharaoh and he demands the Pharaoh let all of the Jewish people go, their entire labor force, slave labor. And of course the Pharaoh doesn't like that. He, he begins to throw Moses out, more bottom of the ninth. Eventually God comes through, but then they bump into the Red Sea, bottom of the ninth. God parts it. I mean, it's incredible. Moses is like perpetually in the bottom of the ninth, yet he wins every single time. It's just incredible. Jonah, you, you ever been in the belly of a whale? It's really dark in there, right? Not a lot of hope, bottom of the ninth. Yet he goes from running away from God to being an evangelist. A few days later, he survives, bottom of the ninth. I mean, David, if you're fighting a nine-foot uh, giant, bottom of the ninth. That's a tough moment. That is darkness. Yet there's hope because he has a slingshot. It doesn't seem very hopeful, but God comes through, bottom of the ninth. I mean, David hits a home run with his slingshot, rock right in the head, falls the giant, kills him. I mean, you got Peter, Abraham, Ruth. I mean, Jesus, right? It's Friday, real dark, but Sunday's coming. Like, it's Friday, Things look really bleak. There is not much hope left. Bottom of the ninth. If you are ever on a cross, that is a bottom of the ninth moment. And yet three days later, he comes back to life. Resurrected. Hope. It's incredible. All of these comeback stories. And so as you kind of look through all these stories, you begin to see how often God comes back. How often God creates the comeback. It's really full of hope. And it's inspiring as a follower of Jesus. But then, but then you come across another guy. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. His name is Stephen. Stephen's story is a little bit different. Um, as we continue this conversation today, hope in the darkness, I want us to talk about the story of Stephen. Because Stephen's story is uniquely different than all of those other stories. And, and in Stephen's story, we learn something really important about hope. And we learn something really important about how to live when we're in darkness and what might could be true if we can think about the darkness a little bit differently. Let, let me tell you a little bit about Stephen. Um, Stephen is a guy that you might not have heard of. He, he doesn't have a really long narrative in, in the Bible and scripture. The first time we hear about Stephen is in the book of Acts. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. New Testament starts after the birth of Jesus. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the four accounts, documents that kind of talk about the life and time of Jesus. After the resurrection, 
Luke, who wrote one of those, also wrote a companion document, a sequel, called Acts. And it's the actions of the disciples, the actions of the first church, the first century church. And so in the book of Acts, you should read it if you never have. It's so cool to read. It really is the beginning of what we're doing today. It's the beginning of Christianity, the beginning of the local church. And so as Luke writes about it, in chapter six, we hear about this guy named Stephen. So all of the disciples who were following Jesus are kind of in charge of this fledgling belief system, this church. And so they're trying to do everything they can to help the poor, to you know, move the gospel forward, and there's orphans and a lot of need, and so they can't take care of all of it. And, and these two groups begin to fight about who's getting too much food, I'm not getting enough, they're getting too much, I mean, you know how this goes. And so the disciples elect a few people to help in the food distribution. Stephen is one of those people. Stephen gets involved in helping the disciples. He's so good at it that every time he goes to help people, people are putting their, their, their faith in Jesus. Stephen saw a resurrected Jesus probably, so his faith is really strong. He's sharing with all these people, not just what he's been told, he's sharing what he has seen, what he has experienced. And people are putting their faith in, in Jesus everywhere that Stephen goes, which is incredible. It's also a problem for Stephen. Because as he begins to become more popular in this movement of Christianity, other people begin to take note of his popularity. People like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite of the Jewish faith. They're the ones who falsely arrested Jesus, falsely accused and arrested Jesus, falsely tried him, and eventually had him executed on a cross. This is the same group of people. Now they're hearing all of these things about Stephen. And all the things that Stephen is doing to move this ridiculous faith forward, this silly faith where these people are worshiping and believing in the dead Jewish carpenter that they claim has come back to life. That's what the Pharisees believe. And now they've set their target, their sights on Stephen because Stephen is moving the movement forward and they don't like that. So eventually they get so frustrated with Stephen that they seize him. And you know what they do? (laughs) They falsely accuse him the same way they did Jesus. They arrest him. They put him on trial in the same way that they did with Jesus. It's almost identical what they're doing to Stephen than what they did to Jesus. There's a moment where in this kind of fake trial where they have these trumped up fake charges, they look at Stephen and they say, do you have anything to say for yourself? I have to imagine that moment Stephen thinks about what Jesus did. In that exact moment, When they said to Jesus, is all of this true? Jesus said basically nothing. He said, it is as you say. That's it. It's what got him executed. Well, they look at Stephen and they say, is all of this true? And Stephen goes, hey, instead of taking the Jesus route, I'm going to tell you what I really think. And Stephen launches in to the speech to end all speeches. He launches into this massive speech where he's dissing him and hitting him in the face. I mean, he's just letting him have it. I mean, he goes on for a long time. You can read the whole thing in in, in Acts 6. He goes on for the whole thing, and he is just going at him and going at him. He goes all the way into chapter 7. He's just letting him have it. He's telling them all about their ancestry. Every one of you has kind of stiff-armed God. All of you aren't listening to God. You all think you're so holy, and none of you are good. None of you are getting it right. I mean, he is just letting them have it. He's letting them have it. 
And he continues. Let me read kind of the end of his speech. It's so amazing. He looks at him. This is in Acts chapter 7. He says, you stiff-necked people, which we hear that and we think, there's like an injury, like that's like a put down, okay? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised, which I know doesn't mean much to you, but it is a real low blow 2,000 years ago, okay? Think about that later. You'll get this, a joke. Real low blow. Um, do you know when you were a kid, you remember being a kid and you would tell like your mama so fat jokes, remember that? Like 2,000 years ago, if you were a Jewish kid, you would tell like your daddy so uncircumcised jokes. Like... <laughs> This is a big deal to look at these Pharisees who have done everything they can to follow the law of God. They're following by behavior. They think God loves good behaviors and being circumcised on the eighth day and all this stuff is about behavior. And he looks at him and he goes, your ears and your hearts, you don't get it. You have no idea what God is really about. Well, of course, they didn't really take too kindly to the uncircumcised joke, right? So he continues, you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you, you imagine he's pointing his finger at him, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You killed the son of God, the Messiah that you are waiting on, you Killed him. Way to go. Good job. Way to pay attention to God. He says, you who have received the law that was given through the angels, but haven't obeyed it. Boom. Roasted, as my teenager would say. Like, it's hard to imagine Stephen in this moment of vulnerability, man. His life is in their hands. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't apologize. Oh, my bad. Jesus is really dead. Sorry. Like, he didn't do any of that. He looks at him and just gives them the riot act right to their face. Well, they, of course, they didn't take kindly to any of this, especially the circumcision part. They were not excited. Story of Stephen continues. So they, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, they dragged him out of the city. And they began to stone him. Now, this isn't that unusual for what Stephen just did. Not that weird that they did that, but... I mean, come on, right? This is Stephen. I mean, if you're being stoned, probably counts as darkness. It's the bottom of the ninth moment. There's two outs. It's probably two strikes on you and two outs. But, but this is Stephen, right? I mean, like he's one of the good guys. He's one of God's guys. Stephen, who's been feeding the widows and taking care of orphans, Stephen. Like this is Stephen who goes to synagogue church every week. He goes there every week. He's better than you. He goes all the time. He, he probably led the sixth grade Sunday school class at his church with boys, sixth grade boys. I mean, it smells, they don't listen, right? I mean, Stephen, Stephen is like the guy who, who gives to his local church. He tithes like 10% of gross, not even after taxes, like he's really good. And he gave to the synagogue building project on top of his tithing. I mean, Stephen's one of the good ones. Like he is one of the best ones. He's one of God's guys. So, of course, of course it looks bad for Stephen, but God's gonna come through. Of course it looks dark for Stephen, but at some point God is gonna have a dramatic comeback, just like he did with David, just like he did with Abraham, just like he did with Ruth, just like he did with Jesus. Of course he's gonna do that. It's Stephen. It's Stephen. 
Meanwhile, Luke tells us, meanwhile, the witnesses, this is a big event, the stoning, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is so fascinating. Like, this was such a big event, there was a coat check at the stoning. Which makes sense because, like, it's hard to really wind up your shoulder with a cloak on. I mean, they're, they really want to stone this guy good. Like, they don't want to throw, you know, curveballs at him. They want to really get him. And Saul, this, this guy Saul, who is a Pharisee, he's there collecting their coats for him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, which of course he did. Like, I don't know if anybody's ever thrown rocks at you, but you would pray too. You you may not even be a Jesus follower. You may not even believe in God. But if things get dark enough, you will even pray. Isn't this true? Like, even if you don't believe in God, if it's dark enough, if the season is bad enough, if the circumstance is bad enough, you will even say something like, dear God, I don't even believe in you. Am I supposed to say dear? I don't know what to say. But if you're real, I really need your help. And if you get me out of this, I promise I will, which you don't mean, right? But you're trying to butter God up. You don't even believe in God, but you're willing to turn to God when he's all you have possibly left to turn to. Stephen's the same way, right? And he's beginning to pray to God about this. Now, what, what do you think Stephen's praying? Like, if you were Stephen, what would you pray? I know exactly what I would pray. You know, God, help me turn to rubber and them glue. Like, let the things they're throwing at me bounce off of me and, you know, hit them in the throat. I know it doesn't rhyme, but like, you get the point, right? Like, this is what you would do. God, if I could say it a different way, God, please remove me from this. God, please save me from this. God, please allow this circumstance that is so dark to change. God, allow me to find hope in this darkness. God, allow me, allow me to survive this. God, help me, save me. That's what we would pray. Listen to what Stephen prays. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. This is fascinating. When Jesus was on the cross, he prayed a couple of things too. He only said a few words. Most of them were prayers. This is actually one of the exact things Jesus said when he was dying on the cross. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Je Jesus also prayed that. When he was hanging on the cross, he looked at the people who hung them there, who nailed him there. And they're casting lots to divide up his clothes and they're mocking him. And, and Jesus looks to heaven, looks to God and says, God, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. And then Stephen prays the same prayer. It's so fascinating. No help me, no save me, nothing like that. When, when he had said this, when he had prayed this, he fell asleep, Luke says. And, and not like he took a nap while the rocks were hitting him. Like he, he died. He died. Stephen died. One of the good guys. God, God didn't save him. God didn't rescue him. God didn't intervene. Stephen just died. He lost. And the Pharisees celebrated. And they went back home and got, they got their coats from Saul and, and went back. I mean, when we read the story of like David or Abraham or Moses, it's so easy 
to be inspired by that. Like it's so easy for those stories to grow our faith because no matter how dark it is, God can come through. Like no matter how bad it looks, no matter how much you're losing in the game, God is still God and God is still in control and God still has the world in his hands. But here's the question. What what are we supposed to do with the story of Stephen? Like I know what to do with the story of David. Like I know what to do with the story of Ruth. But, But what do we do with the story of Stephen. See, this is an important question. And and the reason it's so important is because sometimes in life, and I don't need to tell you this, sometimes in life we, we actually lose. Like sometimes in life, we walk up to the plate in the bottom of the ninth of a moment and we don't hit a home run. We don't even hit a single. Sometimes we walk up and we and we just strike out. Sometimes we walk up to the plate and it doesn't go the way we want. And we pray about it, and we hope, and we pray, and we hope, and it doesn't seem to work. It, it seems like we just lose. I, I don't know what that darkness looks like for you. Maybe, maybe you've been through a bottom of the ninth kind of moment in your life. Maybe you're in one right now. Maybe a friend of yours is in one right now. There are so many areas of life where we can experience this tension, experience this bottom of the ninth, hopeful moment that doesn't seem to provide the hope we hope. We don't have the comeback we want. Maybe it's, maybe it's like with finances. Like maybe there's a moment in your life, maybe this is right now where, I mean, it isn't like you bought the big TV that you couldn't afford on, on credit and you, know, you paid it off at 18% interest and it was kind of stupid, you learned from it. Like not this kind of financial darkness. Like, like this is the kind of darkness where you lose your job and you can't pay your mortgage. It, this isn't like I'm in debt. It's like it's the bottom of the ninth and I am losing and, and you just got a foreclosure letter. The game is over. The stands are empty. There, there is no more opportunity. There isn't another pitch coming for you to have a comeback. It's just over. You, you lost. Or, or maybe you've experienced this in marriage. Like you, you stood up there at that altar, remember this? You stood up in front of your friends and a pastor or a judge and you made promises. You know, I promise I will never I promise I will always. And then that person, that guy, he promised the same things, but then he didn't decide to keep the promise. And you went to counseling, like, like you were in therapy and, and you were working hard at it. But, but one day in the counseling session, you found out that it's not that he had an affair. He is having still an affair. And in that moment, he tells you, and by the way, I've decided to leave and I'm marrying her. I mean, it's not like there's another pitch coming. It's over. You struck out. You lost. Maybe if you have kids, you felt this way. Like maybe there's a prodigal kid. There's an addiction. There's an issue. And gosh, man, you have done everything you can. You've done tough love. You've done soft love. You've paid for rehab. You don't even have any more money. And you just found out that he left rehab early again. And you are praying like crazy and he won't listen, he won't answer the phone, he won't come home, there's nothing you can do. The game is basically over. Or, or maybe you're trying to have children, and you can't. Maybe, maybe everyone around you is pregnant, and you're not. And it is so frustrating. And you are doing everything you can. And you have one more shot, and you're experiencing infertility treatments. The doctor says, hey, and, and, and you have spent tens of thousands of dollars and you don't have any more money for this. 
and you've got one more chance and you go back to the doctor and they tell you it didn't work. I mean, it's not like there's another opportunity. I mean, it's over. The game's over. You lost. You're dating and you think it's going really well and she doesn't think it's going as well. You can see a future with her, but she doesn't kind of see it the same way. And, and, and you've been doing it the right way. Like you didn't date when you were in college and just, you know, debauch your way through the university. Like you really tried to do it the right way. Like you really tried to be moral. You, you, you tried to treat people with respect, not selfishly. You waited till you were in your upper 20s to even really date seriously because you wanted to get it right. But now you're 35 and the person you thought was gonna be the person is not the person because they told you that they're not the person. And you're worried. You're worried about being single. You don't know how to do that. It feels like, it feels like the game's over. Or maybe it was just like a health situation. You know, you, you got a diagnosis and, I mean, you, you, you were expecting to hear something bad, but when, when you heard the word hospice used, you, you weren't really prepared for that. When they started talking about making sure you could be comfortable, you're like, no, I, I don't, that, that's not what I'm here to hear. <laughs> I wanna fix this, but there isn't a fix. There's nothing that can be done. I mean, and you prayed, and you came to church, and you prayed, and you came to church, and you did all the things that you were supposed to do, and it just didn't seem to matter. There, there wasn't a David comeback story. There wasn't a Ruth story. It just felt like a Stephen story. Aren't, aren't you glad you came to church today? You know, what's fascinating is that in baseball, when a team enters the bottom of the ninth losing, only 5% of the time they actually win. 95% of the time they actually lose the game. And again, in life, it can feel that way, can't it? It can feel like sometimes, no matter how dark it is, we wanna maintain hope, but we realize at some point, there might not be any hope. <laughs> there, there might not be a comeback. It might not go the way that we really have been praying and hoping and praying and hoping that it would go. And if we continue, if we continue in our worlds, in our lives, to look at our lives through the lens of our current earthly life, we're probably gonna lose. And it's gonna hurt. And we're not gonna see hope. And we're not gonna experience hope. But if there is a way if there's a way for us to kind of look a little more broadly, if there's a way for us to look at life through the lens of eternity, things can actually change, can be a little bit different. That's actually the story of Stephen. When you hear the rest of Stephen's story, you realize how there might still be a place for hope. When Stephen was persecuted, when he was stoned and when he died, a huge persecution broke out against all of the Jesus followers. They were all kind of stuck in the city of Jerusalem. They weren't going to all the ends of the world like Jesus has said. They were still in the neighborhood. But when this, when this death happened to Stephen, a massive persecution broke out. Everybody felt like, hey, we can stamp this whole movement out. Let's just stone them all. But as this persecution started, it caused them to leave their neighborhoods. It caused them to leave Jerusalem. And as they fled, Christianity actually spread. As they fled, the gospel spread all around the Mediterranean, all around the world. Hey, listen, in a very real way, we are sitting in a church today because of Stephen. 
Like we're sitting here today because Stephen was willing to not give up hope. Not that he would be saved, not give up hope that God would come through and have a magical comeback, but he didn't give up hope that something bigger than him might be possible. Like he didn't give up hope that something bigger than him like you, something bigger than him like the kingdom of God, something bigger than him like everyone who was watching and everyone who was paying attention, he didn't give up hope that those things could be changed, that those people could be moved. He didn't give up hope that those people could find hope. That's such an important part of this story. You know what we actually learn from the story of Stephen? The whole story of Stephen? <laughs> we learn that you can be used even when you lose. That's what we learn. We learn that you can be used, that God can use you even when you lose, even when things don't go the way that you want them to. I mean, God used Stephen, right? Like God used Stephen even though he didn't remove Stephen. Like God used the life of Stephen even though he didn't remove Stephen from the circumstance, even though he didn't change it, even though he didn't save him. God still had a much bigger plan that was much bigger than Stephen and he used Stephen for that bigger plan to happen. And we actually are part of that bigger plan. Stephen's life allows us to be where we are and who we are because God used him for something bigger than just him. It's incredible. And so you know what else we learned? We learned that how we live really matters. Like how we live as we lose actually determines if we get to be used. How we live during these moments, during these circumstances where we feel like we're losing, how we live during that determines what God can do with it. There, there's this incredible thing that we do. I mentioned it earlier. We pray all the time when we're in darkness, right? When we're in bad situations. And you know, the, pray that we the prayer we typically pray is the same thing that we assumed Stephen would pray. It's the thing that we probably have prayed. It's the thing that we hear other people praying. We, we pray, God, you know, will you remove me? God, will you please take this away? And we begin to ask questions, right? Why isn't God removing me? Why isn't God taking this away? Why isn't God changing the circumstance? Here, here's what I wonder. I wonder if in the middle of darkness, no matter how dark it is, in the middle of tough situations, diagnoses, in the middle of all that, I wonder what would happen in our life if we shifted our perspective by shifting the question. Like, like what, if, what if instead of asking, why isn't God removing me? What if we began to ask the question, how can God use me? Amen. How can God use this? Yeah. How could God do something bigger than me in the middle of this? Stephen's story actually is connected to this coat checker guy named Saul. Remember the guy who was collecting all the coats? He's a Pharisee, Saul. Saul hated Christians so much that he decided he wanted to follow up the stoning with a whole bunch of other executions. He, he talked to the Pharisees and the people in charge in Rome, and he got permission to go and do everything he could to stamp out all of the followers of Jesus. And that's what his mission was. Saul began arresting Christians. He began murdering Christians. He was the greatest Christian mercenary, probably the greatest persecutor of his time. One day he was on a road going to Damascus to do even more of this. Because again, now they've fled everywhere and the gospel is spreading. He's got to work double time. He's super type A, which is good because he wants to get to all the places where the Christians are. And he wants to 
execute them all. He wants to end the movement as fast as he can. While he's traveling, a voice shows up from heaven and a bright light blinds him. He's blinded and he says, who is it? And he hears a voice from heaven and it's Jesus. And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul changes his entire viewpoint. He changes his faith. He becomes a believer. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And he decides to go by his other name that you've probably heard, the apostle Paul. Saul becomes Paul, the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. The guy who planted more churches than any church planter has ever planted. Two-thirds of our New Testament Bible is made up by the letters that the apostle Paul wrote to the churches and to the Christians that he was supporting, not executing. At the end of Paul's life, he's reflecting on the darkness he's experienced, and he has experienced a lot of darkness. And he's writing to his mentee, this guy he's been mentoring named Timothy. And he wants Timothy to not lose hope when it's dark. He wants Timothy to see beyond himself. He, he wants Timothy to understand that even if it, there is no more hope in this life for him, there is always hope in the next because everyone needs hope in the next. Amen. And so Paul writes to Timothy and he basically gives him a formula for how to maintain hope in the midst of the worst darkness, in the worst situations. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's the formula for facing darkness. It's the formula for facing situations that are bottom of the nights and you're striking out and it's over. This is what we do when we hit those situations. Just three things. First one is we fight. When we find ourselves in darkness, we don't give up. We fight. But we don't just fight for a cure. We don't just fight to get out of debt. We fight for something way bigger than that. We fight for relationships. We fight to forgive. We fight to love the people who feel unlovable. We fight to remain generous. We fight for the things of this kingdom of God. That's what we fight for. Not for our kingdom. We fight for a bigger kingdom. And as we're fighting, we, we have to decide we're going to finish and finish well, no matter how the situation goes. We have to decide that we're going to finish well. And even if it doesn't go our way, and even if God doesn't mount a massive comeback, that we're going to continue to fight and we're going to continue to finish well until there's nothing else that we can do. Because a lot of things hang in the balance, including the eternity of people around us, including their hope. And the last thing we're going to do is we're going to keep our faith. We're going to keep our faith because we're going to believe that no matter how dark it is, God can do something with it. That no matter how bad it is, that God can redeem it. Maybe not in our lives, but it's a story that can be told that will support others, will help others, will provide hope for others. We're going to maintain our faith that God can actually use us even when we're losing in this life. And let me just tell you, if you think that that doesn't make a difference, it makes a huge difference. It makes a massive difference. We have, we have no idea what hangs in the balance when we choose to fight and finish and keep our faith. We have no idea who's watching 
We have no idea how God could use it. We have no idea what his plans are for it. But when we begin to think about everyone around us, when we begin to think about how God could do something through it, it changes how we see it. You know, as a pastor, I've been working as a professional Christian for probably 15 or so years now. I mean, I have watched so many people walk through some of the worst things. Sometimes God did mount a miraculous comeback. I watched marriages that had absolutely no hope become restored. I, I, I saw people in, in diagnoses where hospice was in play and then somehow a miracle occurred. I've seen some of that. But I've seen more of the other. I've seen more of just real life where things didn't go the way they were praying it would go. I, I, I've been to people's homes where the elders and I anointed people with oil and prayed over them and they still died. It's tough. But that's kind of how life is, isn't it? One of my really good friends, a guy named Donald Wise, I actually have a picture of Donald. Um, this is Donald and his wife, Sandy. Um, when I was working in the, the marketplace, I was really thinking about going into ministry. Donald was one of the guys who helped me figure that out. He was kind of a mentor for me. And Donald, um, incredible guy. Um, Sandy's his wife, has three kids, all involved in church and, I mean, grandkids. I mean, just incredible guy. So happy. Like, you know, you ever bump into people that just make you smile no matter what's going on? That's Donald. That's how he is. Um, when I first interviewed to become a lead pastor, Donald was in the interview. And he was interviewing me along with a group, but he also kept grinning and nudging me because he knew that it was going well. He wanted me to feel good about it. That's how Donald is. A couple of years after, um, well, actually, when I became a first lead pastor, Donald was on my elder board. Like, he was helping me and, and training me. He'd been in ministry for a long time, you know? A few years in, into becoming a pastor, Donald um, was diagnosed with, with cancer. It's colon and rectal cancer. And, you know, not, there are no good cancer diagnoses. Like, nobody gets cancer and thinks, oh, great. I mean, it, all of them are bad. Um, Donald's was particularly rough. The surgeries and the things that were going to have to happen, um, it was pretty traumatic on his body. And so, but he went through it. Lots of chemo, lots of stuff happening. And six months, like after all of this, you know, had happened, I mean, he was actually doing really, really well. He's back at work. And I mean, he was doing really, really well. Um, then he started feeling bad again and went in for some tests and they found out that he had cancer again, but, but it was a different kind of cancer. This time it was melanoma cancer. So he's still fighting this colon rectal cancer. Now he's fighting melanoma with a completely different kind of treatment protocol, different plan. I mean, the whole thing, you know? During this whole time, I'm like talking to Donald a lot. We're emailing back and forth for calling. I'd see him every once in a while, the hospital, maybe at his house. And, and, and every time I walk in, you know, I'm like, Donald, how are you doing? He was like, oh, I'm fine. How are you doing? How's your wife? How are your kids? How's ministry? I mean, he was so concerned about me. And I'm like, Donald, you're the one hooked up to the drip. I'm fine. How are you? He's like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm fine. And all he wanted to do was talk about me. All he wanted to do was, was encourage me to help me, to support me. So moving. Um, while Donald was going through treatment, um, so many people would come in and talk with him. I think that we counted, he um, basically was able to help restore four marriages, um, four marriages during this season as people came in and just spent time with him. There, there was a nurse that was a part of his chemo treatment um, 
who had a, an elderly uh, father, 95 years old, uh, but internationally, didn't live here in the States. And she had no money and no opportunity to go visit him and he was dying. So Donald, from his hospital bed, raised $2,000 to send this nurse to see her dying father before he passed away. Changed her life. She actually became a believer in Jesus. I mean, it's incredible the things that Donald did. After a long, long battle, Donald eventually died. Um, I actually, Sandy asked me if I would do his funeral. So I got to officiate Donald's funeral. We actually talked about what do we do when we lose? We talked about Stephen at his funeral. And it was unbelievable to see a room full. I mean, thousands of people at Donald's funeral. At one point, just for Sandy and, and, and Donald's children and grandchildren, you know, I, you, you don't do this at all funerals, you know. And, and to be honest, you can't do this at all funerals because if you do what I'm about to tell you I did, it would be super awkward because no one would stand up. I said, hey, if, if Donald's been a part of your faith journey, your life, if Donald's encouraged you, if you have found hope because of what Donald has done in your life, would you just stand up so Sandy and her kids can just see that? Like 1,500 people stood up. 1,500. You know, I, I, I saw some of the people and I knew their story and I knew how Donald had interacted, so many of them during his cancer diagnosis. It was incredible. They sat back down, everybody's crying, you know? And I thought, there it is. That's what a real comeback looks like. It doesn't always mean that God removes us. It means that he's willing to use us. See, we, we don't really choose when we lose, do we? We don't get to choose when we lose, but, but we can choose for our life to be used. We don't get to choose every time that we lose, but we get to choose how God can use it. We get to choose if God will use it. And that's an opportunity we have every single time we're in darkness. Here's what I'd love for us to do as we kind of wrap up today. Um, I want us to pray a prayer together. And it's really a prayer of submission. It's a prayer of recognition that, that God might save you in the moment. He, he may bring you out and have an incredible comeback. Or, or hope may be found in a different way. Hope may be found in the story of someone else. Hope may be found in how God uses you, even if he doesn't remove you. Let me, let me read this prayer for us and then we're gonna do it together. God, while I do not desire to be in the circumstance now or in the future, I do want you to use my life for your glory and for your good. In my difficult moments, give me strength to fight for what you would fight for. But if I lose, I pray that I will finish strong and increase the faith of others. And I pray this in, your Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. If you're comfortable, you don't have to, but if you're comfortable, I'd love for us to pray that out loud together. Really as an acknowledgement of what God can do to bring hope in the midst of darkness. Let's pray that together. Say, God, while I do not desire to be in this circumstance now, or in the future. I do want you to use my life for your glory and your good. In my difficult moments, give me strength to fight for what you would fight for. But if I lose, I pray that I will finish strong and increase the faith of others. I pray this in your name, amen. Let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that there is a bigger story to be told than just our story. 
thank you that no matter how dark it is, and even if you don't remove us, you can use us for something so much bigger than us. God, I'm not even gonna pray that you help us avoid the darkness because it's impossible. In this world, we will have trouble. You promised that. And it is gonna happen. We're gonna have difficult darkness. We're gonna have situations, circumstances that we don't want and we don't wish for, but we're gonna find them. And God, when we do, I pray that we will adjust our hope and we'll adjust the way we live through it so that you can use it for your glory and for the kingdom. Father, we love you. And Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.